This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Alpha Counseling and Treatment. Alpha Counseling is the largest and most respected provider for justice-involved clients in need of sexual offense-specific treatment services. Alpha is also a JRI-certified agency providing moral recognition therapy and substance use disorder treatment to justice-involved clients. You can be confident that treatment you will receive with Alpha Counseling will help you will help keep you out of the criminal justice system. Alpha clinical professionals are trained and certified in cognitive behavioral interventions for sexual offending. This evidence-based program teaches participants strategies for avoiding sexual offending and related behaviors. The program places heavy emphasis on skill-building activities to assist with cognitive, social, emotional, and coping skills development. Visit their website today at utahsbesttherapy.com, or you can call them directly at 801-645-5455. All righty, folks. We are back at it here today. It's going to be myself, Jeff, and Mace, and we are going to have a discussion today on episode 18 about healthy boundaries. Stay tuned. No, 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 no. Well, um, no, sexual behavior problems and then just our, uh, um, but, but exactly what kind of we're talking about today. I mean, we're the, um, the, the idea of this, um, healthy boundaries is kind of what we wanted to discuss a little bit more with, with regards to our, uh, the clients that we work with. And I guess when we talk about this, as we present this and, and you guys can tell me how your take on this, I guess the, you know, the purpose of us bringing this up is to kind of help them understand. Usually they, they factor into two different extremes in terms of boundary problems. I'm either in totally enmeshed in this relationship or I'm isolated and finding yourself in either of those categories is just not a great thing. Are you talking about boundaries with like a significant other, or the boundaries they cross to commit their offense? Well, both. I think you'd, so I, once you're able to kind of unpackage that, then I think you, you help them understand that, you know, and it, and it doesn't just have to be a sexual offense. I think any, any sexual behavior problems, you know, are, are reticent of a boundary problem as well. Like that's, that's part of the, that's part of the problem. Right. Like you're going to run into that. Well, yeah, there's the balance of recognizing for one that I have the right to hold my own personal boundaries, mm-hmm. but that also my, in a relationship aspect, my, my thoughts, my feelings are just as important as the other person's. Well, yeah, but, but I mean, and exactly. No, I mean, you also have to kind of say that they need to learn to set like firm boundaries in unhealthy relationships. This is kind of is, and I'm not saying they're all dating a bunch of clients that have clients or, or they're dating a bunch of people who have borderline personality disorder, but you know, the only thing that works with borderline personality disorder is setting firm boundaries, like really firm boundaries. In an unhealthy relationship, that's really all that I can do if I want to maintain this, right? Well, I mean, yeah, let's – and again, just again for listeners or whatever, let's make sure that we're all talking about the same thing with sure. boundaries. I mean, I don't know if there's like a Merriam-Webster definition of boundaries that we'd use clinically, but isn't it just kind of like what you're willing to accept and what you're willing to not accept – yeah. I mean, we have another one. We have another one of these lessons and we talk about bottom lines and boundaries. And oh, yeah. and so whenever I, I find myself in a relationship, you know, they, they have that the big C word, right? Compromise. So I have to compromise in order to maintain this relationship. Um, and boundaries, though, some can be some can be, you know, bent, some can't be. And, and I say, but then bottom lines are a little bit more serious. You know, if I have a bottom line in a relationship, if you do X, 
Um, that's my bottom line, right? And then and those are those are useful. If I set up these boundaries and I say, okay, if, if these are crossed, here's going to be the here's what I'm going to do. And too often, the, the lesson we teach in there is that people, you know, we'll get into that in another podcast, I guess, but people don't follow through on that. They just they say I'm like, um, okay. And a great example is okay if you if you cheat on me, I'm out. I'm, I leave. But then, but then they do right. that. They cheat and then they don't leave. So now I've just taught you that whatever it's bottom, not a bottom line, line anymore, right? No. Whatever bottom line I've just set with enough, you know, I don't know, flowers. I'm going to come right back to you, right? So the yeah, the boundary is is essentially me putting forward first of all what your limitations are with regards to me and what what my limit limitations are with regards to you within this relationship, and um and this is where they have to understand the relationship between any type of sexually abusive behavior and poor boundaries, which is certainly a, a big factor of that they go one in the same. So maybe what, what kind of boundary problems do you guys see that led to creation of the offense? I mean, Cause I think maybe it's worthwhile talking about these things in kind of a, a couple different categories that they, the, the boundary violations we see that lead to a sex offense. And then also by the time we're working with them, once they've been convicted and now here they are in, in the chair across from us, how do we explain boundaries to them and how do we ask them to apply those? Well, I had, I had a good example, just one of my groups tonight, where was a guy was, we were talking about some of the CBI stuff, like how to take criticism or how to handle criticism, you know, critical feedback. Yeah. And so I was asking the group to come up with some examples of a time, you know, in their day or in their week where they feel like they can take the feedback that they're getting and how to go through these steps of, you know, not reacting to it. And so one of the guys came up with his boss basically called him in the moment and screamed at him and swore at him not to do something. And so he just, his, his go-to response was just kind of like, well, why would I say something? That's my boss. I shouldn't say anything. So the group we talked about, you definitely have the right to say something. You know, you have the, he has the right to communicate a message to you. You have the right to not be insulted like that at your work. But you tend to think, well, it's hard for me to get a job. It's hard for me to find a job. So I just got to take what I can and put up with that when you really, you don't have to put up with that. But that was a huge part because this is someone I work with individually, but that was a huge part of what led to his offense was in his marriage. It was just, I've got to take everything. I can't speak up for myself. I can't say everything. So this is a lifelong pattern for him that turned into, well, where can I speak up? Where can I take some sort of control? Where can I be the dominant one? So he, he struggled with understanding when was the appropriate time that I'm going to be able to bring like, to even, s- no, just that I even should, that I even can say yeah. to my boss, Hey, don't swear at me. Okay. Well, that's, uh, so I think this is why, um, y- y- often clients are reluctant to say no within mm. a relation. I mean, and so that is a relationship and that's an important relationship. This is my boss after all. And I have to be careful with how I, how I regard this person. I mean, they're, they're different, right? So I, I think it's, it's a common theme, particularly if we have clients who maybe haven't had a great deal of social skills or dates, you know, in their lifetime, they haven't really, they haven't really had very good relationships. They have a hard time setting firm boundaries, drawing any lines in the sand and saying, oh, this is what we're doing, right? Because there's a fear. There's a fear that this person's going to reject me. I mean, after all, I'm coming into this situation, maybe I have some baggage, maybe I have substance abuse issues, maybe I have uh, mental health problems, maybe I've committed a sexual offense, and now I'm entering into a relationship with you, like, thank God somebody's even talking to me. Yeah. And then I'm I'm not willing to set a boundary in this place that's, you know, in this in this relationship with you, because if I do, that might be too much for you, and then you will, will reject me. And so they often will kind of compromise their what they want to get out of the relationship, up to and including you know, violating some of the terms of, of what they've agreed to either in treatment or probation or something like sometimes a, you know, I don't know, 
a person they're dating might say, well, let's go to the park. And they don't want to say no because now I'm, I'm giving you a reason to exit this relationship. And so they teach this other person that you can just take advantage and manipulate me all you want and I'll be there for you. And the other people do that. And then again, they're, they're kind of not doing what's right for them. And they feel eventually they feel like crap in this relationship. Yeah, because they're sending the message to themselves. I can't stick up for myself when I'm a doormat. Yeah, their needs aren't being met either. No. I mean, eventually they think because I'm in a relationship, everything's going to work out. But that's not how it works. And they and a lot of a lot of folks don't understand that. They need yeah. a lot of education in that. Well, I, I think that it hits back on what you were saying, you know, that a lot of our guys don't feel like they've got much to offer. You know, let's say, yeah, I, I have a felony. I have, a, I'm now a sex offender. I already, before all of this, didn't have any real luck in relationships. So all the cards are stacked against me. I finally found somebody that's willing to, to be with me. And I, I think that that fear is expressed through them compromising their own boundaries and getting involved in things that lead to a violation. It's funny how a uh, human of a, an experience that is, I think we get used to our work and, and I think obviously sex offenders or felons have their stuff aired out a little more, you know, on the internet, public information. That's such a, a human thing. Like say someone with no criminal background, will usually think, well, I'm not done with school. I don't have a good job. I have this. So I'm not really worth having a relationship. I'm not really worth sticking up for myself because all these bad things about me, it's ends up being the same thing. Like the same insecurities. I think a lot of people deal with that. They take into a relationship or they take into a job. It is. And, and well, let's go back to your client. You were just talking about it. Mean, you I mean, it's kind of the same thing. You, you, you said that his inability to stick up to his boss somehow paralleled, uh, the, his, his interaction with his wife at the time of his offense. Can you go into that some more? Yeah. So the whole idea was, is, is from his marriage, it was more like whatever they did, whatever they bought, whatever time they spent with friends or whatever happened to their daily routine was always her call. So basically what his job was, he, he took some of the stereotypical role of, I'm going to go work 60, 70 hours to kind of keep up with the obligations at home as far as having the house payment, having the cars, having all this stuff. But I can't even tell her, no, I'm so burned out with work. I'm so sick of work. I don't want to work anymore, but there's no way I'm going to go tell my wife that, you know, she's going to leave me and this is the best person I've ever found which resulted in him going outside the marriage, you know, whether you want to talk about like prostitution or committing his fence where he ended up getting pulled into a sting with somebody that was uh, underage. So it's kind of, he, and he even opened like talks about it. He just said, yeah, that was someone where I knew I wasn't going to deal with that. I knew I wasn't going to deal with being told, no, you can't do this. No, you need to do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Is that, is that kind of like Dateline? Like to catch a predator, you're talking to a police officer on mm -hmm. the internet. Yep. As, yeah. It was posing as a 13 year old. Yeah. Show up there. The cops are there. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's a perfect example of why we focus on other stuff outside of just the sexual act itself and treatment, you know, rather than just focusing on, okay, what, you know, uh, what's your arousal to 13 year old kids uh what were you thinking at the time it like the you have to look at the motivating factor behind it and a part of it was the dynamic justin just expressed it's it's uh i don't know i guess traditional sometimes traditional sex offender therapy would be concentrating specifically on the the offense itself without looking at the the factors that led to it you know maybe people might be wondering why why would we be focusing on on boundaries with a, like Justin? You're wasting time in therapy talking about a guy sticking up for himself to his boss. He's not here for employment reasons. He's here because he's a sex offender. You know, and I think that w what you just described is the answer to that. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, but but I mean that connection I think is difficult for people to understand because a, a piece of that though is okay. So if I'm not willing to set 
those boundaries with, you know, people in my life who are important, who, who do, you know, make decisions that could affect me. Well then why would I set boundaries in other relationships in my life? Right. And why would I set boundaries on myself for that matter? I mean, boundaries beget boundaries. If I, if I set boundaries with other people, I'm likely to be setting boundaries with myself too. Mm. So, you know, example is, um, if a client has a problem looking at pornography, right? Okay. So if I, if I, if I have a problem looking at pornography, um, a, a boundary that I might set with myself is I put a, a, a web filter on that and then link that to somebody who, who would be able to monitor my behavior, right? Now, granted, okay, of course. I can always just go get another device and I can always go do whatever. But I'm saying if, if I'm independently doing that to control my own behavior because I know that I'm, you know, there's more steps into going and getting those other things, I'm much less likely to do that. I'm setting boundaries within my, within myself too. Problem with it is if I'm willing to engage in what would be a, you know, sexual activity with a 13 year old girl, you know, that's, <laughs> that, that again is an unwillingness to set boundaries with a person who you need to be setting boundaries with. You need to set boundaries with children, you know? Yeah. Go, so kind of go on the opposite end of the spectrum. He right. Would, he's so devoid in one aspect. So he goes total full bore the other way when he can. Well, why would he, I mean, why would he set boundaries in any avenue of his life? So ultimately, so you're just going to start setting boundaries with, you know, and, and, and granted, you know, I'm I'm not trying to say that it's justifiable that you're going to develop, you know, sexual feelings towards a 13-year-old. What I'm saying is devoid of any boundaries in a relationship with a child or or an adolescent, you know, those those relationships can get pretty, you know, murky and the boundaries can be crossed. What's say I'm an adult, you're a child, there's there's expectations that come out of an adult, there's roles of an adult, there's roles of a child. And we're going to set boundaries, and if those are crossed, then we're going to fix them. Yeah. And if I don't ever have that, if I don't ever have a basis or a value system on on which to, you know, play out this relationship, well, then I mean, those boundaries can easy, easily be crossed, and that's that's a lot of what times happens into leading up to the offense. This, so do, do you guys know what I'm talking about when I <laughs> uh, Finkelhor? <laughs> there, there's a that's a, that's a dude's name, not. Uh, an insult. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's this guy. He, uh, for, it, it's out of one of the treatment workbooks. Might be Pathways. Is it? Is, is Finkelhor out of Pathways? Yeah. That, that well, whole four. That four accountability. The four barricades. Yeah, but I don't know if he. I don't know if he was. It was specific to that. It's in there for sure. Well, yeah. hear, hear me out. Tell me if it applies. So, yeah. uh, so there's this idea in treatment that for a sex offense to happen, uh, an abu- for an abuser to be able to get to their victim, that they have to cross uh, four different boundaries uh, until they commit a sex offense. That, and I think this has to do with boundaries. So the the first one would be motivation. They have to want to do it, right? That, that the motivation might be unmet emotional needs. Uh, maybe like your client with, uh, not saying no to his wife. It, it could be just, you know, straight up sexual gratification. Uh, could be curiosity. Sometimes we run into that. Could be striking out with somebody, you know, people his age so that, so they go younger. Uh, so they, they have to want to do it first. And then that's the first barrier, the first barricade, boundary, whatever you want to call it to pass. And the, the second one is called internal, right? Yeah. Like, that for them to pass by their internal barrier, that's basically Jiminy Cricket, their conscience. They have to find some way to appease their conscience because mo- most of these dudes, almost everybody that comes to the door, they, they damn well know that what they're doing is wrong. They know that they shouldn't be doing these things. So they have to find a way to give themselves an excuse. They have to bypass their own internal boundary. They have to say, 
I won't get caught just this once. It won't hurt her. I'm teaching her. Uh, it's going to be good for her. She won't remember. She's too young. Uh, whatever it is that they uh, tell themselves to rationalize their belief, that's another boundary that they have to bypass. Then, so that motivation was first boundary. Second boundary is their internal Jiminy Cricket barrier. The the third one is external. The external boundary. That's where they they have to find some way to get the person along to arrange some type of weird babysitting scenario to, you know, with your sting operation, I'm sure your client was trying to take covert measures, clear a search history, browser history, you know, like something doing something to make himself feel okay that he can get away with it and find a way to engage in this act without being, without being caught. So he has to arrange some type of environmental condition which is another maybe type of boundary you could think about that way. And then finally, and I think this is where sex offense specific boundary stuff comes into play is they have to overcome the victim's resistance. Victim's resistance is that fourth barrier. So that's where grooming methods come into play. That's crossing boundaries. They have to uh, bribe, manipulate, coerce, uh, trick, force, whatever it is that they, they have to find some way to get the victim's compliance. And then that's when the, the sexual act is committed. So again, motivation, they have to want to do it internal. They have to make themselves okay with it. They have to appease their conscience, uh, external. They have to find a way to get away with it and arrange their environmental situation such that they can. And then finally they have to violate a whole bunch of boundaries to overcome the victim's resistance. However, that may be. so, I mean, that's, that's, right in line with i think everything we do do you think the internal ones either uh probably like the easiest one to overcome boundary wise because it's so easy to bs yourself oh yeah yeah. dude think how often you trick yourself into doing shit you said you wouldn't do for like just dumb innocuous stuff you know i think in the last podcast we were talking about a ben and jerry's addiction when bartriff was on here right (laughs) You know, uh, like a barf truck, a uh, barf truck. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like I had a long day. It was really stressful at work. So I deserve to. Oh yeah. That. I deserve mm-hmm. to. Yeah. Or if I do it today, the rest of the week I'll eat clean though. If I just, mm-hmm. if I have one today, I won't do any more this week, this <laughs> month or whatever it is. Yeah. But but that's probably by far the easiest, right? I mean, well, I mean, I guess motivation, you could make it maybe motivate yourself or your, you know, decrease motivation. Who, who knows? No, you're probably right. It's probably internal barriers. It's I can, be. I can talk myself into anything, dude. Oh yeah. You know, well, there's or make no, everything sound okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's no outside influence at that point. I mean, there's no social consequences for thinking about something, yeah. right. Or considering, <laughs> you know, one of these other, and it, and it's purely internal that I'm going in that direction. I mean, and that's, so again, I, no, I think that's spot on. And if I'm not willing to set those boundaries with myself, well, then it's easier for me to not honor external boundaries or even recognize external boundaries, certainly not set external boundaries. And then, you know, the victim's resistance by the time I'm to that point, um, again, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm much easier to kind of cross that because I've already kind of justified you know, maybe maybe I have a connection with this girl online after all, and you know what is age anyway? And she's awfully mature the way in she's talking to me. In other countries, this is yeah. Sure, I mean, there's, pl- I mean, all of those are internal. Whatever your behavior is, trust me, there's something out there to justify it. There's a there's a way of thinking out there to justify it. The question is, is am I even going to allow myself to think that way? 
I mean, because if you allow yourself to start thinking that way, then you, well, then yeah, you're going to be able to justify it one way or another. Trust me, you're going to get there. And so talking to a client about standing up for himself to his boss becomes very applicable all of a sudden, even though it doesn't seem like yeah. it has anything to do with sex. Yeah, you could even pay. argue, so talking to someone like that, let's say that was his issue. You could even argue how to him, maybe it's a big deal that every now and then you're a couple minutes late to work and you start to get comfortable with that. And then I start to get comfortable with five, 10, 15 minutes late for work. And now I'm getting written up and... So I think it's kind of recognizing the slippery slope where individually, yeah, where are your boundaries and what's what's okay for you, what's not okay, and when do you start to cross those way before it's ever your sex offense land or felony land, whatever <laughs> it is, using using drugs. Kind of like if you laid out 100 dominoes and the 100th was your sex offense, well, let's start tackling stuff at domino three, domino four, being yeah. aware of where you're letting things slip there long before it ever goes down the trail yeah because because if he if he has a gig that his boss respects him and he gets good positive feedback he makes enough money to take care of his family and he and he values going in there and he feels a sense of pride at the end of the day uh, he doesn't want to lose that yeah. i mean i mean if i if i go into a shitty job where i feel like my boss doesn't care about me talk shit to me all day i you know my wife's not grateful for the the work that i do um you know i i i slave i don't have any free time i'm just slave labor you know all this other stuff you know you start to be able to justify some of these you know really acute type of impulsive behaviors that can result in really high risk decisions and you know maybe it's not a sex offense maybe it's drugs no i mean i don't you know there's yeah you drink too much or you just go off the deep end with junk food well yeah fleeting pleasures are 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 very important to people who are going down that path like they 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 just want some type of relief temporarily feel good for a minute right but what about on the other end of the spectrum what about the clients who i mean have their boundaries or weight so so this was this uh event in their life it was you know their offense their um their sending to prison and or or um, involvement with the courts or you know maybe they got their children taken away or whatever they put up these huge barriers Uh, all boundaries all the time screw the world i can't trust people right i'm gonna become a hermit in a cave on the mountain and not involve myself with anybody because i can't trust anybody i mean there's it seems like there's some social consequences and personal conf- consequences to to that as well. Man, I start. I mean, that's accurate. I I usually start out by just kind of letting them vent on that stuff. I mean, I guess my natural inclination as a therapist is to jump in and talk about how important trust is and social relationships and this and that. But a lot of times when clients are fresh off of uh, a prison sentence and you know, kind of dealing with all the ins and outs of the system. They're not trying to hear any of that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so I think a lot of times it's just sort of validating where they're at. Uh, but yeah, how do you get them to turn that corner though? How do you convince somebody to allow themselves to open up? How do you get them to see that some people can be trusted? Like, what, what do you what do you guys tell a client that says, "I don't trust anybody. You have to earn my trust." You I know? just usually go, mm-hmm. "Yeah, hey, you're right. I do." <laughs> okay, it, which starts you the just process. Roll with it. Yeah, yeah, you you're right. You shouldn't trust me just because I'm sitting here on the opposite side of a desk or because I have <laughs> cool letters after my name. Just, yeah, it's a two-way street. You I, shouldn't I, trust me right now. You should work on – we should work on that together. I should earn that. Uh, yeah, I correct them though and and like you have to earn my trust. But that's not how trust works though. I mean trust is – so – well, I mean I guess it's earned because I give you my trust, right? But there's two different factors there because you're talking about there's two things you got to monitor. There's trustworthiness which is measurable, right? So trustworthiness is, 
are there behavioral characteristics about this person that says I can trust them? Oh, all right. Yeah, sure. So, and, and I, I encourage clients to think about those things. Okay, really, so what, what do you need to see from a person that says you that they're trustworthy? Not that you trust them, just that they're trustworthy. We're not there yet, right? A lot of them are stumped. Like, what do you mean? I'm like, okay, well, let, let's just say, as a therapist, what are some expectations you see out of me? Usually, usually it's, you know, I, I don't want to be judged. I, I want you to advocate for me. I want you to be on time. I, um, I, you know, I want you to be understanding. I don't want you to attack me. I don't want you to make fun of me. Yeah. So I say, okay, that's great. I mean, I, I was like, have you ever like legitimately generated a list of these things that say whether or not I'm a trustworthy person? And then not only, and not keep me in the dark, say, here's what I need to see from you to determine whether or not you're a trustworthy person. Now I'm going to take that or leave it as a, as, as your therapist and, or any type of relationship, the, the list they present to you. Correct. Yeah. In a therapeutic context, it's probably a little bit more appropriate. I mean, if you give some girl, Hey, I need to see these things out of you to trust. I mean, it's <laughs> probably yeah. not right. Yeah. But I say, okay, so you get the, the general idea. Trustworthiness is, I can measure it. It's either there or it's not there. And I can base that on behaviors. Now trust is different because trust requires vulnerability and trust requires me to be vulnerable to you and then you to reciprocate that vulnerability. So like, I think it turns in a great conversation is like the age old question. When do I disclose my offense or when do I disclose that I'm an addict or, or whatever these things are? And I say, well, I don't know if there's a right answer to that. I mean, everybody has their opinion and I say, I don't know if it's a timeline. I don't know if it's a, uh, to me, it's more, am I willing to be vulnerable to this person so now I can I can now try to say I can trust them. Making yourself vulnerable does not immediately say that I trust this person. What they do with that vulnerability, that's what makes trust. So trustworthiness first, I'm gonna be vulnerable to you second. What you do with that vulnerability is, is where third, I trust you. And if they understand that process, they're much more likely to engage in relationships where there is a trusting person on the other side. So that, that solves, I mean, solves, right. That, but I mean, in, in it, that addresses that component of clients that are closed off when it comes to trust. And that there's, there's another reason that I've, that I see that when, when a client is not really ready or willing to be vulnerable yet, and it doesn't have as much to do with trust as it does with them wanting to be the rock and not be a burden to to their loved ones, you know, it's, and it's really common with men, I think, male offenders and shit, man, I'll identify well, males as, in general. Yeah, I was gonna say myself, yeah. myself, you know, like I actually share this with clients and so I'll just throw it out on the podcast. Uh, a few years ago, my wife and I got into a fight about something and something you clocked her in the and face I, and I punched her as hard as I could. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. It's definitely a joke listeners. Yeah. <laughs> now we got in a fight. I did, I did say something dickish though. And I made her upset and you know, I had to apologize after. And, uh, you know, after we were kind of making up, I started like venting about all this other nonsense that had nothing to do with what our argument even was. I just just dumped a lot of crap that was on my chest that I hadn't really talked about anybody with. And uh, like, go figure. It felt great to get that off my chest. Yeah. Like, oh, right, my then. God. You know, and like I, I got all that off my chest. Felt great. And uh, my wife was saying, like, well, why don't you, you cry, bro? Yeah, I cried. No, I nice. might have. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, ginger tears. Yeah. It's basically like, Those are the best kind. Though. Yeah. It's like that acid from aliens. Dude, yeah. <laughs> Their blood. And then she licked them off my face. Oh, yeah. her she poor like, tongue. <laughs> good. Good. Caca. Yeah. She didn't lick my tears. But 
uh, metaphorically maybe. But I, after I dumped all this stuff, she's like, why don't you do that more? And I said, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm the strong one, you know, so, so to speak, I, I want to be able to be here for you. I want to be the person, you know, this, this is, this is my role. And she, she kind of pointed out in a roundabout way that I was being a hypocrite because I'm telling my clients to open up and here I am being closed off. And so it, I don't know why it didn't dawn on me. What creeps up on you though? I felt like, a, well, I felt like, okay, if I like everybody else has enough on their plate, if I open up, then I'm putting more on their plate. I'm, I'm an inconvenience to them. I don't want to be a burden. If anything, I want to be the person people come to. I mean, shit, that's my job. My job is to be here for other people. So it's like for me personally, it was a strange concept, even though it shouldn't have been to actually bother to find somebody I trust to unload that on. And she said something to me that like made my brain click in a weird way. It, it's like, you're not a burden. It says, I feel like I'm, I have worth and value when you actually open up to me. She says, I'm not, you're not a burden at all. I actually feel like I'm doing my job as your wife. I was like, Oh no shit. I'm like yeah. that did not even dawn on me. I was like, Oh yeah. Huh? That makes a lot of sense. And so, so uh, in other words, she felt more important yeah. that you were sharing this very personal information that had not been shared with anybody else up until this point. I never looked at it that way. That reinforced to her how important the relationship was. I never looked at it that way. Yeah. And I'll bet. Well, I don't think a lot of guys do. Yeah. I don't think. Well, and, and because I mean, you kind of, if you were talking about that with a group of dudes and we're here talking about this, but I mean, sometimes like imagine if we were uh, um, running you know, Ragnar in June. <laughs> and you started talking about this nonsense, right? Never. I think what would happen? The other dude's like, oh, bitch, you know, like, I'd be yeah. like, well, stop being a pussy, you know, like. For sure. So there's a. And, and rightly so. <laughs> yeah. yeah you don't talk like that around your friends not around your bros i think it's i think it's socially inappropriate to do that and that's fine to acknowledge yeah. that the problem though is too often this this stigma that and it's kind of like um and there's plenty of things out there i think there's a couple what's that what's that um that documentary on netflix what is it called the masks we wear oh yeah the, the mask you wear yeah. yeah and then there's like i think we have that tough guys documentary oh yeah uh, educational video i should say i mean they're, they're great and one of the things they're talking about is kind of this, this or the mask you live in sorry yeah that's it mask yeah you live in. the mask you live in yeah. okay well the, the, i mean one of the themes of that is there's kind of the way men choose to express masculinity is 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 a problem sometimes like, i mean it's not saying don't be a dude. I love being a dude. I would never not be a dude. Like, you know, I love it. But I do think that we can take a page sometimes out of being being vulnerable and sharing those emotions because mm. if we don't, I mean, just look at every violent crime there is. Like, girls can't hold a candle to what we're doing. But instead, we categorize them as crazy because they get emotional yeah. and cry and get loud and stuff. And we're like, oh, you, man, that, that bitch is crazy. And if they point to the scoreboard, we're crazy. Well, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, That's pretty true. Behaviorally, yeah. we're nut jobs. Yeah. We are nut jobs, dude. Yeah. And. I think if you were more emotional and vocal about this and being able to talk about it, one uh, to me, all that says is one way or another, you know, this emotional energy is going to come out one way or another behaviorally, or is it going to be vocally? And I'm going to express this. I'm going to emote, you know, whatever this is one way or another, it's going to come out and if it comes out behaviorally. And especially if I don't have very good coping mechanisms or somebody there to, you know, talk to or something like that, it can lead to a lot of problems, really high risk behaviors, damaging behaviors to others, obviously. So I, yeah, I, I, that idea that I'm going to say, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, express myself within this relationship and be vulnerable to you is a huge component of this. I mean, 
not not devoid of any homework. I mean, I can't just meet somebody, <laughs> you know, and, and immediately open up to them about everything about about myself. I don't I don't think that's the ticket. Well, that's bad boundaries, also, though. Right, right. I yeah, think that's you, not that's that there, there's. I mean, that <laughs> we know those people too. You know, I mean, anybody listening to this, it, it, I, I bet you that you know somebody that overshares like right out the gate and they just come in hot with all their drama and all their emotional situations and that like maybe they're attempting to do what I'm encouraging people to do here. It's just they maybe I don't know if it's like a social grace or when you get a feel for when the right time is or what the right person to actually unload that type of thing. But it's certainly a sign of a, a poor boundary when you are willing to share intimate or stuff that makes you vulnerable with someone that you've known for a day. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I think you see it on Facebook a little bit, you know, people posting, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. you know, they think about the posts that you see, the, the obvious cries for attention, you know, that, that, that's, uh, I get that's probably what a lot of us we don't want to be seen that way. We don't want to be seen as needy. We don't want to be seen as like attention whoring. Well, yeah, think about so think about like with with jobs of so stereotyping with males. So say you get a new promotion and you're adjusting to it and you feel kind of overwhelmed. You're probably not going to go to your boss. I mean, I think you should, but you're probably not going to go to your boss and just say, hey, this is a lot to take on. I'm kind of having a tough time with this. Any tips on how to handle this? Because your thought's going to be like, well, I don't want to have it look like I can't handle this thing. And then they take it away from me and I look weak. So then what happens is they get overwhelmed and then they don't handle it as well as they probably could. Where I would have to guess nine out of ten times if they went to their boss, they'd probably be pretty understanding. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're new to it. Yeah, try this. This might help. Try this. They're not going to think anything bad of it. But there's that perception of I'll seem weak. And usually... I actually, I don't know, it could be to another male and female. Yeah, if, if I look weak to anybody, then that's bad. You know, they right. won't want me as a mate, or they won't want me as an employee, and I, I'll seem like I can't handle something. Well, there's a lot riding on it. Yeah. Like, like it, that's not good for your employer to think you're weak, yeah. even if it's a misperception or whatever it is. You, you don't want that yeah. to, to be the case. I like, I don't want. I don't like the idea of anybody thinking I'm weak. Doesn't mean that it's not necessarily the case, but I don't. I don't like that idea. I like to at least. Even when I'm feeling insecure, I like to at least project strong, confident image. It's, yeah. it's important for what I do for a living. I can't go in and cry in front of a client. Which is, which you know is, what I mean? Which is funny because so. because I've had a few times where like I've teared up or like choked up in front of a client, which I think was a cool moment though. Like I had like the one that I had specifically was a guy I've been working with a long time who was going through reunification, so being able to be back in touch with his family. And so his kids, you know, eight, nine years old, it was the first time they've seen him, like literally seen him in years. And those are happy tears. Yeah. So it was, like, it was <laughs> yeah. just cool, though, because even, even then I think people can say, well, a lot of guys might say that's a weak kind of thing, but I think also really strengthen the relationship. I guess I should clarify that the situation you described, that makes sense. I'm saying like... You know, Mace hurt my feelings before a session, and I go, <laughs> like, you know, in front of a client. Yeah, yeah, like you know? a, yeah. a total meltdown. Yeah, yeah like that yeah. type of thing. I'm yeah. good that's at that. that's not, yeah. yeah, you are. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that's not that's but not. It, but there is there is a there is a kind of a catch twenty two to that where I would say, yeah, the stereotype for males like you've seen you're seen as weak if you show tears. But yeah. I think it's 
generally speaking, quite the opposite. Like a guy that's willing to be obviously not just a wreck in front of everybody all the time, but when it's appropriate to kind of cry, you know, when, cause it, what's usually the first thing a guy says when he starts crying in front of other guys? Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Well, why are you sorry? Especially yeah. if someone, someone breaks down in a group, you're talking about something really difficult and you're crying. You should probably be crying. Well, you feel like you're inconveniencing them or like you, you sort of like lost face somehow and you're wanting everybody just to forget that you're there, ignore you, make it all go away. Yeah. You know, I don't know that that's, that's, I guess my guess at why people, oh, sorry, sorry. Oh, no. sure. Yeah. yeah. They think it's comfortable and no one else in here is going to know what to say. And now I'm making it awkward and I should suck it up and be tough. And I don't want to be a burden. Yeah. Right? I don't want to yeah. be a burden. I don't want to have to put you guys out to invest emotional energy and making me feel good again. Sorry guys. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and well, and it perpetuates the problem though, because if I think if I, if I feel like becoming emotional, then I'm, I'm, ultimately vulnerable to my own emotional mind, you know, that, that can cause a problem for me because then I think that, Oh, I'm going to lose control when I get emotional. Well, if you never allow your, and one of the things we continually try to teach them is look, it's not about not experiencing the emotion. I don't, if I'm sad, I don't try to go from sad to happy. That's not the objective of therapy. The objective of therapy is can I appropriately be sad? In other words, can I be better at being sad? So the the idea that I'm just going to stay away from these emotions yeah. because I think I'll lose it, you know, when I'm experiencing these emotions or whatever, I'm going to, or I'm going to embarrass myself or I'm going to do something I ought to not do. Well, that makes it, makes it much less likely that they're going to be able to control that again. <laughs> and then I'm going to engage in behaviors that are fleeting pleasures to make me feel better. Or I just get so pent up and a lot of clients, you know, they call it, I get bottled up. I just felt a ton of pressure. And, and the weird thing is it, it's hard to predict because it's generally not um, a big event. In other words, you're dealing with um, kind of a cumulative stress type thing. So I have this cumulative stress buildup and then there's a straw that broke the camel's back. It's not that big of a deal. And then I blow a gasket, you know what I mean? And it really wasn't that thing that just happened. It was all the you know, 50 other things I've been dealing with this month that I haven't been able to talk about or express myself about yeah. that really pushed me over the edge. And then, then you legitimately look like a crazy person because like, geez, don't screw with Jeff. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Spot on. Yeah. It's, and it, it's, well, I think that's the weird thing for, for again, generalizing for men is there's this, I think it's an illusion that if I have to be vulnerable, like sad or depressed or whatever, that I, it's, I'm not exactly sure how that goes. I'm not used to that. So I don't know how that's going to feel. That kind of freaks me out. But anger, I'm pretty used to that. I generally know how that's going to go. I think there's an illusion. Well, I can control that. If I'm mad, that's kind of me in control, even though obviously you're not in control, especially if you're flying off the handle. But it's familiar. It feel, yes, it's familiar, yeah, right? Yeah. Huh. That, <laughs> that I hadn't thought about that before. It, it does it, feel well, like and, and as far as society's is concerned that's the acceptable go-to anger like your friends if you're pissed off like oh yeah fuck dude beat yeah. his ass you know whatever if it, yeah if uh, if your lady breaks up with you bitch you know and yeah. it, it, you go to it's anger the acceptable right? approach yeah. yeah so it is familiar you don't want to say oh yeah my heart's broken i really miss her you don't say that in front of your friends yeah. you say bitch yeah. you know get yeah. pissed off go yeah. smash something yeah. yeah i think it's the illusion that you're in control of that yeah. Well, your friends don't encourage this either. No. I mean, they, they don't do a good, they don't do a good job. I mean, I, well, this is the thing though. You go to your buddies and, and, um, I ask clients, I'm like, okay, so let's say you're dealing with this. Who would you go talk to? And there's like someone I trust and someone who's loyal. I'm like, mm, I don't know, man. Cause, okay. 
So what if what if I'm I, you know I just broke up with my girlfriend and I go to Justin and and I'm like man I just you know, broke up with my girlfriend she was cheating on me with you know this guy or something like he's like let's go get him you know like <laughs> uh, uh, which, which happens a lot I'm right sure. and then I yeah. get hyped up and then I like so it's not saying that let's just so him. it's not saying that Justin's a bad friend. And it's not saying that Justin's not loyal. And it doesn't say that I can't trust Justin. It just means Justin's not a good person to go to for that. Yeah. You know, like my emotional regulation. And this is where psychotherapy can be really effective because this is a person I'm going to come to. They're going to be non-judgmental. They're going to give me objective feedback. Yeah, they're neutral, right? Right. Like if anybody's There's no bridge to burn. If anybody screws either of you over, like I'm ready to go beat them down, you know, that which is not legal or good or anything like that. I'm not justifying it. But uh, yeah, well, None of us are probably the go-to when it comes to like venting that type of. I mean, maybe we should be, but we're not. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and so, that's so go to so go to a therapist. <laughs> Don't, yeah, yeah. Go to a therapist. Well, that's, that's yeah. exactly the point, though. Is recognizing who might be a little too emotionally tied to that situation, and maybe they're not a great person to go to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's. I think ultimately that's what we we try to really emphasize in some of these things. If I'm experiencing an emotion in relation to an offset boundary within a relationship, you know, um, this idea that I'm just going to respect that. I'm going to identify and respect that emotion for what it is. I'm not going to try to, I'm not going to try to, you know, run from it. I'm not going to, I use the analogy of, um, of putting it on a scale. You know, I, I think a scale is useful. So, um, anger is a great one. Anger is one of those that people say, stay away from altogether. I mean, they, you know, say don't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't experience anger, even though it's probably one of the most frequent emotions we'll ever going to experience. And I know anybody listening to this, you know, anger is a secondary emotion, but trust me, man, when I'm seeing red, the last thing that pops in my mind is, Hmm, what am I really feeling? You know, like, <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. I, I can't even yeah. think about this. So I think the objective is to ask, you know, this is say, so, Really, if I'm using some self-control strategies and mindfulness, I need to just admit to myself that I'm angry. And um, and I've had to do this in the past, too. I would get really angry, and I, I would hit inanimate objects, you know, hard inanimate objects, you know, that would really hurt my hand at I times. Know. Yeah. Yeah, 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 you do. <laughs> the odd, did, did, did. Did. I'm over it now. Yeah. The odd thing was is – and so this is cool because I can relate to clients sometimes about this. The odd thing was is it felt good. I felt better. I felt relieved. And so then I – kept doing it for a, a period of time it worked well it did it was very effective right um and so but but yeah i'm not really i'm not really dealing with that effectively i'm expressing this behaviorally again not getting comfortable with the emotion you know and then what and then it comes down to you break something that's valuable to you like one and then you're like, oh no because you immediately feel good but then maybe three seconds later you're like what did i just do you know yeah. and you have to think about this so then I just need to be more mindful of these times and experience this. And the question is not, okay, if I'm, on a, if I'm scaling this, so anger, you're zero to 100. Zero is no anger whatsoever. 100 is the most angry I could ever imagine. I've never even been to 100, right? What number are you at? And they say, eh, uh, you know, I'm at an 80. And, it, and we're, what we're trying to de- develop for that client is imagine what what's the threshold for you? At what point are you going to, you know, pop somebody in the face or something like that and pay attention to this progression in your anger. Okay. 80 is my number. 
Well, the objective doesn't go from 80 to zero. The objective goes from 80 to a 79. You can still be very angry, and that's okay. You're just comfortable. You're not expressing it behaviorally. And guess what? The next time you experience anger, you're going to be better at being angry. And I'm not saying like you get to be a pro. I'm saying you're better at managing your emotions and being comfortable with those emotions. So it's like clients we work with in the jail. They come in like, I'm feeling depressed, dude. I'm like, I would too. <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> you, sh- you should. You That's should. Yeah, you should. I, and I try to educate them like, man, Zoloft ain't going to help. Zoloft, Zoloft is, you know, an antidepressant gets you to the point where there's a legit chemical imbalance. The objective of Zoloft is not to make you happy. The objective of Zoloft is to get you to a point where you can actually regulate your emotions so that you can be happy and do something about it. If I'm so depressed, I can't even get out of bed. What good does it do? I try to normalize it for my clients too. As I do during a concrete box with no windows away from everybody that you love around a bunch of stinky dudes that might be violent and you have to share a toilet. Like, you know, I mean, yeah, be sad. That's, well, yeah, that's I had normal. To, I had a conversation because you just how you said it, Mace, is how I usually pitch it to my guys when I'm talking about managing anxiety or anger or depression or whatever it is. I would say, say for example, your go-to right now is when you freak out, you're at a nine, you're at a 10. It's not how do we get you to a zero? It's how do we make a nine and eight? How do we make an eight a seven? How do we make it a seven a six and get used to that? Because it was kind of funny, the interaction I had with the guy that was kind of freaking out and he's just like, you make it sound so easy. You're so calm. Well, that's why you're talking to me. If I just freaked out too, <laughs> it wouldn't, you wouldn't really be talking to someone. <laughs> they yeah. they yeah, come in. The- yeah, they come in. They're all, my boss told me to piss off. You're like, what? What'd he say? <laughs> Let's get him. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I, and, and kind of normalizing it too. I'm like, dude, there's times i get up to a seven or eight or nine and i just don't handle it well i don't and the on the average i would like to be to the point where i mostly do i can bring myself down i accept it i don't fight against it and freak out every time but you're human like sometimes you just aren't going to be able to pull it down to an eight right away sometimes it takes a little bit sometimes you don't make the right choice but that's how you have to learn from it right yeah it's well what it's kind of goes into what we were talking about um with brett you mentioned brett earlier and this idea that I'm just not willing to tolerate pain, you know, at all. Oh, yeah. Right. And that's why we have a big problem with this, you know, this opioid crisis that we're dealing with right now. But the basic idea here is that exposure to this, the, these painful or distressing, distressing emotions without any association to like, you know, negative consequences will eventually extinguish a client's ability to like, you know, stimulate secondary negative emotions. So in other words, I mean, I'm saying like, you know, the natural, the natural consequences of I'm going to judge a negative emotion or an uncomfortable emotion as bad, right? Feelings of like guilt, anger, anxiety, you know, whenever I feel distressed is that they, then I, I feel like I shouldn't be experiencing this. This is abnormal that I'm feeling this way and then I'm going to suppress it even more. So, you know, if they could just tolerate a distressing situation and I'm saying like literally I'm not, don't, if, you, if you're trying to avoid drugs, don't go to your dealer's house. Like that, that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm saying you, life will take shits on you enough and, and embrace those times and say, I'm going to tolerate this distress. I'm going to tolerate this painful affect that I'm dealing with. And if I could only refrain from feeling guilty or anxious, this kind of secondary crap about these painful emotions in the first place, then I'm just, I'm going to be more prone to being able to deal with that. Yeah, so that's like, how you move through it. Exactly. You just got to be, you got to kind of embrace that stuff. And, and, and if it, yeah, nobody said it's not going to suck. Of course it's going to suck. It well, that's sucks. a big part of building trust with someone kind of going back to the, the boundary side of that is if I, if I shut everybody out and I reject everything and I don't even try to get out there, 
well, then I, I kind of guarantee that I'm going to be lonely or I'm going to feel off, but that's on my terms. That doesn't, that there's no vulnerability there. So I kind of control that that happens. However, if I go out and I start meeting people, kind of like you said, in order to build trust, I got to be vulnerable. But I think for a lot of people that struggle with that, especially men, being vulnerable is really uncomfortable. There's no guarantee in how that goes, mm-hmm. but I have to, I have to go through that in order to experience something different, like connect with somebody or have healthy boundaries in a relationship requires a part of me being vulnerable and not trying to control the outcome. And that's in every relationship. Even when I'm like, even when I'm dealing with like a probation officer or a parole officer Mm -hmm. or a caseworker or something like that, I'm not saying that this needs to be like, you need to like the person because sometimes they don't. And, And that's for a lot of weird reasons. What I'm saying is you're, you know, for the most part, I think we work with, really good, you know, POs. I think all of them do a, a good job of trying to protect the community. But I think guys would be better off and have a better relationship with their PO if they just made themselves a little vulnerable to oh, them. for sure. That's it. And I'm not saying, like, you're going to hang out with them. Of course that's not going to happen. I'm saying when you go into a meeting with your PO and they say, how are things going, the last answer that should come out of your mouth is, fine. Good. The week was great. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. say, I, I think a PO wants to hear some normal stuff. Yeah, man, this this month was bad. I, I well, they want to hear that you're struggling, that you're yeah. human. But you know what? I've been talking to Justin, and we're working through this. You know, I got I got way better because I, I got really angry, but I, you know, I never really thought about it this way, and he helped me understand this, and I, I, I feel like I have – like that instills confidence in the PO that the treatment that you're receiving is much more meaningful, and there's a much more rich experience that has applicable skills than – you know, how's everything going? Fine. Because they blame that on the PO too often. Because, I mean, the what the PO's not going to ask a bunch of open-ended questions, reflections. They're not going to do that. You know, that... It's not their job. Well, yeah, they're a PO, man. Like, I'm just saying, if you make yourself vulnerable to them, you know, a little bit, and sh- throw some things out there to show that you're human and that you... you yeah, you're struggling at times, but you're working through it. Then they, I think that instills confidence in that, in that client. Well, these dudes are have to deal with probation officers for such an extended amount of time with the type of charges they rack up that man, they have to develop relationships with them. And I I think that the, I think that if you're a client listening to this, get it out of your head that flying under the radar is a good concept. Probation officers. I've had, you know, personal conversations with probation officers that use that phrase flying under the radar, but they don't use it in a good way. You know, they, they talk about the person that gives the monosyllabic answers to their questions and they, like they're, they're automatically suspicious of you. You know, if you just make a little bit of effort and just share a little bit. Yeah. I know that you don't want your PO knowing everything. You, you want them as little involved in your, in, in your life as possible. It might seem weird, but that's how to do it. You know, if you if you show your cards a little bit and not play them so tight to your chest, they'll they'll realize, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. This person, they, they've had some ups, they've had some downs. Well, okay. Yeah. I, I can't even tell you how many times I've had exact conversations with POs on, on both ends of that where, you know, someone's coming in a few months, you know, five months, six months into a 12-month, 18-month program. And I'll, I'll get, I'll email the PO, you know, hey, so-and-so said he's doing good. And then they'll, I'll, I'll hear something like, yeah, I kind of wonder what this guy's up to. He just said, he always says he's doing good, which I have the same feeling. If you're just always, everything's great. It's like, Ugh. 
we can all find something to talk about as opposed to a guy that comes in and he's like, yeah, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with this. And, and usually from the PO, I'll be like, I don't really have any worries about him. He tends to tell me anything that happens. So I'm not really worried about him. It's kind of, it's kind of counterintuitive. I think for those guys, like, I have the same mm-hmm. interactions where someone won't tell me anything, won't tell me anything. Everything's good. And not that I'll, I'll think they're lying, but I'm usually just like, well, obviously there's always, they could be talking about something and then they'll come in and they'll open up about something that they messed up. They violated or they watch porn and then they'll think, well, now you guys, you're judging me. I feel bad that I let you down. I'm like, I actually trust you more that you just told me that you violated because you're yeah. being open with me and that's what you're supposed to do. It's kind of like the same idea. Let's say a guy and a girl start dating and a year in, the guy is just always happy and everything's great. Oh, work was a great today. I guarantee she's going to be thinking, why is he not telling me what's going on in his life? Like, why? It's the same idea. Everything does not go good all the time for anybody. Yeah. You always have something you can talk yeah, about. Yeah. And, right. and they, well, and like you're saying, they're more, and, and they kind of, they project this, they're, and they, you know, they kind of shift the blame onto people that they work with. And they're, you know, because they say, uh, you know, I, I think something's going on with this guy, you know, and, and they're like, man. I said everything was good and he doesn't trust me. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Like, okay, but you're creating that environment in the relationship in which he's saying he do, he's suspicious of you because you're not bringing things forward. And, and I think they underestimate the level of patience that a PO can have with a client oh, sure. who's struggling. It's not like you. it's one and done and you're out of there. That is not how it works. Uh, I think, you know, well, within reason, you can't murder somebody. You're probably going back if that happens. (laughs) I'm saying if you have some lapses in judgment and even some violations in behavior, but you're honest and forthcoming about these things and willing to work on this and being upfront about your struggles with it, I I think there's some patience involved in that. And then you kind of, you know, going back to the accountability podcast, like you can't say that's not my golden ticket. I just can keep telling them stuff and, you know, they'll be happy with it. I think, again, you're making yourself vulnerable to that person. A PO is naturally going to feel like they can trust you more because you're making yourself vulnerable to them. And then I say, oh, okay, great. Well, I'm going to trust this guy a little bit more versus the dude who comes in every single week, says nothing, nothing, nothing. And then nine months in, they look at porn and then they get violated. And it's weird because you're like, well, I have, I worry about what else is going on because yeah. everything's been fine. He's been lying to me this entire time. I feel yeah. like I've been hoodwinked. Well, yeah. What else is he lying about? And I, you can't fault anybody for feeling that way or thinking that way. That's totally appropriate given the circumstances. Yeah. And I couldn't, I couldn't throw an exact stat out, but I would say a fair amount of times when I have someone that's going all the way through the program with the whole everything's great everything's great i'm awesome i'm not having any problems i don't know why i need this usually by the end (laughs) they they get caught with something or they fill a polygraph and it's okay 12 months ago and it just the whole time it's like kind of like the the gut feeling was just like yeah that's kind of what you can see and not that that's always going to happen but usually the ones that are always saying everything's awesome are the ones that are kind of having even if it's just little things going on here and there but they're just used to saying everything's good everything's good i don't want to talk about it out of that fear of, yeah, my, either I'm going to be judged by my PO or my therapist or that, yeah, I'm going to get in trouble for that. But there's that whole idea of if I try to control every situation, generally speaking, not going to end well for me, whether it's just a, a love relationship or whether it's probation or parole or whatever it is. I got to have some vulnerability to recognize things don't go well and that it actually can still go well even though I tell someone like, I broke a rule or I betrayed your trust or whatever it is. These these like I don't know if they're these are skills we're talking. I guess they are. They're, they're they're transferable to all other types of relationships, right? Like right now we're talking specifically about interactions with a probation officer. But just in a minute ago, you were talking about how 
you know, the, the couple that's in a relationship and the dude comes home from work for an entire year talking about how great everything is. Like they, these, these were transferable skills and it, they're transferable all the way up to the situations that led to their offense. You know, and I know that's kind of the concept that we broached at the start of this specific podcast, but again, I, I think it's worth, I think it's worth mentioning and repeating is that it b- boundaries basically dictate any of our interactions with anybody we come into contact with, whether it's the, the you know, the, like a literal physical boundary with how close you're able to stand to some stand next to somebody. I'm sure most people have probably done that personal bubble experiment where you walk towards each other, then stop when it, right when it feels weird, you know? <laughs> so like there's, there's those types of boundaries to like intense, deep emotional boundaries with uh, whoever your, your, the, your loved one is, or, People that are in positions of authority, probation officers, employers, whatever it is. Ultimately, I guess just having a good understanding of yourself and what it is you're trying to accomplish maybe dictates how you go about navigating those boundaries, how you go about deciding uh, what I share with this person versus that person. Mm-hmm. You know, it, like I guess awareness, maybe awareness of yourself and what it is you're trying to accomplish with, within that boundary. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, it's hard to prescribe, like, do this, do this, do this, do this. I don't know if that's, I think it's more so every client is going to have a different set of boundaries. Um, But understanding the extremes is really important and avoiding those extremes. So this total enmeshment, I have zero boundaries. I'm going to say yes to everything. Or this idea of isolation, I'm going to say, you know, I'm not going to say yes to anything. Those, those are both problematic behaviors. And I think if you, if you see those in your own life, um, yeah, you need to start developing an understanding of what healthy boundaries are. And it, but it's always going to be different. The context of each relationship is going to be very different. So if employer, girlfriend, PO, friend, uh, I mean, they're all going to be different. Yeah. So understanding what those look like in there, I think it comes down to a conversation with your therapist, loved one, so on and so forth. Y'all. Yeah, it's your, and a lot of it based on I think your emotional awareness. So, for example, anger and resentment. If I'm in a relationship and – like you said, it's going to be different with everybody. So maybe I'm willing to put up with a little more at work with my boss because that's my job. But when I go home, if you know my my spouse or my boyfriend girlfriend is being overly controlling, and I'm catching that resentment, it's not eating that. It's not well. How can I just suck it up? Oh, I'll just deal with it. No, it's addressing that early on, saying, "Hey, I'm noticing this within the relationship, and that's a struggle for me. What can we do differently? Or can you do this differently? Or can I have some more space with this? Or whatever it is." But being emotionally aware when something is starting to get to you that you're talking about that. Yeah, I think uh, I think it was Edwin Lewis Cole who said it best. He said, <laughs> "Boundaries are to protect life, not to limit pleasures." <laughs> that's that's great. There it is. Perfect. Should we wrap up? Yep. All right. We'll see you next week, folks. All right, everyone, that does it for episode 18 of the Gorilla Social Work Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed that one. On the next episode, number 19, we will be talking about internships and interns working in our field. We are actually going to be speaking with one of our fellow therapists and also intern, Tiffany Nieva. So she's going to come on, share some of her story about what it's been like to work in this field so far and give potential or feedback to potential interns, other people maybe that are working in the same field or considering doing so. So tune in for that one. See you then.